0: Welcome to Heroes of Noise. My name is Dan and I am by myself today, but you're going to see real soon. It's not going to be for long. Every once in a while, guys, we like to bring you something special, you know, a little something that's a little bit out of the norm. And today is one of those days. As you guys know, I've been talking about the Shutter podcast video palace for the last couple of weeks, and I'm just raving about it because it's that good. I was lucky enough to sit down with Ben Rock and Bob DeRosa, the co-writers, and of course, Ben Rock is the director, and we got a chance to chat it up for a little bit. Steve's taking the week off, which is well-deserved because the man works very hard, and I thought I would bring this to you. So we're going to get back to a normal show next week, but for now, please enjoy this. I think you're going to like it a lot. These guys were great. They're so informative, and they have a lot to say about Video Palace. Of course. Why wouldn't they, right? I'm going to make this short and sweet. We're going to get right down to it. I'll talk to you at the end of the show, and like I said, next week we'll be back with a normal episode. So without further ado, please enjoy this interview with Ben Rock and Bob DeRosa, co-writers of Video Palace. Let's get to it. (music) And now, our feature presentation. Alright ladies and gentlemen, do I have a treat for you guys today. In October of 2018, Shutter launched its first scripted podcast series that just happened to end up being one of the best thrillers of last year. Video Palace chronicles a young couple's investigation of the mysterious white tapes and the origin from which they came. Today I'm lucky enough to sit down with the co-writers of Video Palace, Ben Rock and Bob DeRosa. Their names should be anything but unfamiliar to you, as Ben was the production designer for the Blair Witch Project, and he also directed Alien Raiders. And then there's Bob, who was the screenwriter for Killers, as well as The Air I Breathe. Guys, I can't tell you how excited I am to have you here today. Thank you so much for coming on. Welcome to the Heroes of Noise podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having us. I want to start off by saying how much I loved Video Palace. The fact that it was a format similar to Serial or, say, S Town, those are the type of podcasts that really suck me in. And Video Palace had that feel, which made it an amazing binge. I couldn't stop listening to it.
1: Thank you, thank you very much. Yeah, it was a lot of fun to uh, to make. It was kind of a a whirlwind because we started uh, we didn't we didn't even start the process until like what June of this year of last year, rather, Bob.
2: Yeah, I think we were talking about it in May, and then started in earnest in June. So yeah, it came together very quickly.
0: That is super quick. Yeah.
2: Luckily like Ben Ben's been obsessed with podcasts for years and he's always bugging me to listen to them and I finally I finally kind of went down the rabbit hole. Luckily I'd already listened to Serial and S-Town so like the fact that you mentioned those luckily when this when this project kind of came together I'd already done kind of I'd already listened to the ones that really inspired Ben uh, and so we we instantly kind of had the same language but uh you know it was uh, fortunate that I listened to some of the, some of the greatest hits of podcasting.
1: Yeah, while we were uh, writing it, too, uh, I was kind of obsessed with a podcast called In the Dark, which they had dropped their second season. And I think if you listen to the audio language that we created for it, it was very much like what they do in In the Dark.
0: So before we get too deep in the video palace, I'm going to kick myself if I don't ask you this question, Ben. Do it up. Do it. Your association with the Blair Witch Project. I don't want to take the glory away from Bob over there because no, Bob's okay. looking good with a smile on his yep. face and everything like that. But I am very curious. So can you give me a little bit of a rundown on
1: how that all came together? Uh, yeah, the uh, the condensed version of it is this: I went to college with everyone uh, involved in the in the writing, directing, and producing of Blair Witch. Uh, we'd all graduated from uh, the University of Central Florida um, between the years of like nineteen ninety four and nineteen ninety six. And, um, Greg Hale, who was one of the producers of Blair, Witch, he'd come out to LA, had worked on the first season of mad TV and had come back to Orlando where we all lived with a, with a nest egg and told me that he had this movie he wanted to do and, uh, that he wanted to produce. And he sort of pitched it to me the way it was pitched to everyone else as a real thing. And then he explained to me how we were going to like, that it was all fake And uh, I was like, "Sign me up! What can I do? I'll sweep the floors. I want to do anything I can do to work on this film because it sounded so cool." And you know, like he was sort of pitching it to me. I think because I'm a a little obsessed with the occult, and uh, you know, always reading you know magazines like 40 and Times or whatever. And um, and I think he wanted to see if the mythology would kind of hold hold up with me, and it and it did. And the first thing they had me do was basically write the like codify the backstory like Ed and Dan had kind of come up with a rough draft of it and then they had me kind of come in and add dates and places and set it in history and, and do all that stuff and uh and then a year later we got to make the movie because we'd made a pitch tapes that that I had I, I'm not saying that I it happened because of me but I'd written a pitch tape that had gotten into the right hands and then about a year later we made it in uh 1997 and, uh, you know, kind of the rest is history. I, I was sort of also the one after the movie came out, like all those other guys were off working on other projects. And I was in L.A. and they were all still in Florida. So I worked on a lot of other Blair Witch related Blair Witch and I guess you'd call it. <laughs> young, like I was sort of a consultant. So I would read the young adult novels or the script to the video game or whatever. And uh, I wrote the the sci-fi channel special Curse of the Blair Witch, which came out a little bit before the movie came out. And then I did two other specials: one for Showtime when the first movie premiered on Showtime, and another one for the um, ill-fated sequel.
2: Yeah, yeah. Ben and I are both from Orlando, so we, we met kind of mid '90s as aspiring filmmakers. So, I like I knew all those guys that, that Ben worked with on Blair Witch Project, and we weren't we weren't super tight. We'd bump into each other usually at the Enzion Theater, which is where the Florida Film Festival um, was headquartered. And uh, I think it was like right after, right before they went to Sundance, I was applying. Actually Ben Ben recommended me for a job as a programmer at the film festival and then Mike Mike Manello, who's one of the producers of their Blair Witch, seconded that recommendation, so I got the job. And then Blair Witch blew up at Sundance, and then we had the second U.S. screening ever at the festival. So I had this weird front row seat to that whole phenomena, and like, you know, Ed and Dan are doing, you know, phone interviews in our offices, and, and just seeing that happen, you know, and knowing the guys who did it was uh, really inspiring and just really cool to be a part of it. And, you know, I think that's kind of when Ben and I started getting tighter and started, you know, you know, being good friends.
0: So this isn't a new union. You guys have been together for quite a while.
2: Well, we've we've been friends for a long time, and yeah. like and like we've had these parallel careers because like I think Ben moved to L.A. a couple of years before me, uh, but we both were here around the same time. And, my uh,
1: my twentieth anniversary in L.A. was like three days ago. Okay, and mine's
2: gonna be. I actually moved. Uh, I think I'm at year 18 right now. Wow! So yeah, you were a couple years ahead of me, but like we had so many mutual friends, like almost everybody we knew from Orlando at some point moved out here. So we're luckily we're part of this rich community of friends. And like, well, Ben was talking about doing all you know all the Blair Witch spinoff projects he was working on. I was working on my career as a screenwriter. And so Ben and I, you know, Ben would be directing, I would be writing, we'd be, you know, friends and mutually supportive of each other. And just to keep from going crazy, we would actually do theater together. And so we we did a lot of, of work for this late night uh, theater show we do at Sacred Fools where we're both members. It's a theater company here in Los Angeles. And they do this late night show called Serial Killers where it's a competitive theater show and it's, uh, we would always write things that, you know, I would write things that were bloody and blood drenched and then Ben would direct them and they were always a lot of fun. And that was kind of like we did that together as friends for years It was the first stuff we worked on and it sort of cr- helped us create this aesthetic that we've you know since been able to bring to to other projects.
0: Seed was planted quite a while ago, I see. Yep. For oh, sure. for sure. Hey Bob, speaking of screenwriting, you wrote Killers and also The Air I Breathe? Sure did, yeah. How about we talk a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. I mean, it's one of those things that's like it's all
2: connected cuz like the director of The Air I Breathe was Jiho Lee and I met him at the Florida Film Festival and he was a visiting filmmaker, so when I moved out he was looking for a writer to help him with his dream project. You know, he you know, had an award-winning short at Sundance. He did all these music videos. And uh, so I, you know, I, I co-wrote this project with him that he was – originally was going to shoot in Korea and then decided to shoot it, you know, uh, English-language. And we had the same manager, and we just got really fortunate. We found, you know, about $10 million in financing. We got an incredible ensemble cast, Brendan Fraser, Samuel Michelle Geller, Kevin Bacon, Andy Garcia, Forrest Whitaker. Like, we just, you know, knocked it out of the park for our first opportunity. And uh, I was really fortunate because I co-wrote it with Jiho. I got to go to uh, Mexico City. I was on set every day. It was just an incredible experience. Uh, and then I came back, and I couldn't use that script as my sample because Geo and I had co-wrote it together. I needed a new script. so I wrote I was kind of angry about that. So I kind of took everything I love about you know writing Hollywood movies and put it into one script. and I wrote this, you know, high concept for a price, you know, action movie that was funny, but not a comedy and romantic, but not a big love story. and uh, and that was uh, it was originally called Five Killers. And uh, it was meant to be kind of a small movie and, uh, you know, Lionsgate picked it up right before the writer's strike. And uh, after the writer's strike, there were almost no projects going around. So we got an incredible cast and they put a lot of money into it and kind of blew up and, you know, and got to see a movie on 3,000 screens. And I I had like the the exact opposite experience on Killers, which is like I worked really hard on that and did multiple drafts with, with various directors. Yeah. But then uh, when it came time for them to actually make the movie, I was uh, at, at home in Toluca Lake in my bathrobe stalking my own movie on Twitter. <laughs> going, oh, Ashton Kutcher punched a stuntman today. So, uh, but, uh, so yeah, I've had both experiences of uh, doing an independent film, doing a Hollywood film, and I learned, learned a lot from both experiences.
0: You guys are obviously fans of horror, and that goes without question. Uh, let's talk about some of your early inspirations. What got you guys so into the horror genre? Is that first of all, is that your favorite genre? Is that what you care to write mostly?
1: Uh, I'll, I'll you I'll, start. I'll start, and you'll finish. Yeah, uh, yeah, horror is is certainly my uh, happy place. I'd say like horror, horror, and thriller, and stuff like that. Like, um, you know, a few years ago, Bob and I uh, co-created a web series called Twenty Seconds to Live. That's kind of horror comedy, you know, like punchy, fast, in and out kind of web series. Um, but I've always been like, I actually kind of started my interest in filmmaking as a makeup artist. And I kind of grew into being like a low, low rent, low budget uh, special effects makeup artist in the southeast. And I worked on a bunch of movies for David Pryor. If you know, like a bunch of weird cult movies, you you maybe have come across David's name here and there. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, the first movie I ever worked on was a movie he directed called Raw Justice. And I was still in film school and I wanted to be a director, but I was like, Hey, you know, let me ride this thing out. And I worked on a bunch of monster movies and stuff like that. And also some completely non-monster movies doing regular makeup, which I did not find to be something that I had an affinity for doing. Like I was, I was good at it, but I didn't love it. And then probably around 1996, I worked on a film that I, um, it was one of the it was one of the last ones I did makeup on, and I was like, "This is just not for me." And I'm glad that I figured this out while I'm in my 20s, and I quit. Um, but you know, my influences, I think, had always like I was the kid in middle school reading Fangoria magazine on the bus. You know, like to me, I, I like my the people I always looked up to were people like George Romero and Stuart Gordon and David Cronenberg and you know Toby Hooper, John Carpenter, all all those you know kind of classic uh, sixties and seventies kind of horror guys into the eighties. And, uh, to me that, that was always the genre that I was kind of aiming at. And and I think it's one of the things that made me so excited to work on Blair, Witch. um, was that it was a different approach to horror. And it was an approach that immediately, like just the concept always grabbed me and it grabbed a lot of people. Um, but to me, like there's nothing as primal as being in a movie theater and having the shit scared out of you. And it doesn't <laughs> happen. It doesn't happen very often. Like, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't get that much of of a jolt. Um Like when you, when you, when you've seen as many horror movies as probably all three of us have seen after a while, you get, you can sort of feel the, the puppet strings being pulled most of the time. And when you can't, it's the best thing ever. Totally. Um But yeah, so. You know to me like I made a feature um, uh, about ten years ago called Alien Raiders. I, I apologize for the title wasn't the title was not my <laughs> idea. You can hold me responsible for literally everything else about the movie but um uh, but you know that was you know kind of a you know sci- sci-fi horror kind of a thing and I, I just I just love that stuff worked with Adam Green. We both actually worked with Adam Green because he released 20 seconds to live and uh, I also worked on the most recent Victor Crowley movie to me. They're the most fun, and uh, there's no, There's no better feeling than showing up at home at the crack of dawn after being in the woods all day long, and you're just covered from head to toe with fake blood. It's a completely different experience if it's real blood. I'd it, imagine somebody, so. <laughs> somebody needs to call the cops then. <laughs>
2: so, so for me, it was a lot of the same influences, but I, I, was, I was more like just a straight-up genre kid. So I loved horror, but I also loved sci-fi, and I loved fantasy. And then I had this kind of weird thing towards comedy as well, so like like all my movies in college, like I did a horror movie. I did a, I did a, you know, kind of a blood drenched thriller. And then after that I did a, like a science fiction comedy. That's actually the short film that, that Ben first saw when we met. And so I kind of, I was big into like just cramming different genres together. That's kind of always been my thing. So like I kind of stepped away from horror in my own writing, in my professional career. And it's kind of my work with Ben that's brought me back to it because like when I talk about that theater stuff, Ben always brings out the <laughs> the dark side. <laughs> he brings out my dark side. But also it's like I love making Ben laugh. So if I can figure out a way to disembowel somebody <laughs> on stage that makes Ben happy, that makes him smile, then that's what I shoot for. So like the fact of like I think us figuring out our aesthetic, like I've never just I think written a straight up horror script. It's always been a mix of something else. You know, I think we we we, we both love Uh, Tom Holland's movie, Fright Night, which I think is a wonderful example of like, Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a straight up horror movie. That's really funny and really character based and like has so many things working together. And I think that's been, you know, films like that are, I think one of the linchpins for like Ben and I in our working relationship. And so we'd actually been doing all that theater when Ben was like, Hey, we could actually, you know, I own all the gear. We could actually put a little more effort into this and make a web series. And so he pitched me 20 seconds to live and, you know, we both did grow up on, like, horror and sci-fi anthologies, and so doing 20 Seconds to Live was a blast because we got to do these little tiny two, two-minute horror movies that were funny and bloody and just really easy for people to watch and enjoy. And that's where I think the kind of the light bulb went off for Ben and I, which is like, oh, the stuff that we do in in theater and in you know and we can we can we can bring that into our career and just keep having that kind of fun and just keep making each other laugh even if it's straight up horror and it's super bloody we can still we can still have a good time
1: yeah if you want to see a, a an example of how depraved bob gets not me <laughs> um watch the the first episode of 20 seconds to live it's called anniversary so like you go th- the 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 formula is sort of like and it, the whole thing plays out and then the title card comes up and then there's like a little coda there's like a one or two shots at the very end and. And the coda of anniversary is possibly the darkest, most disturbing thing I've ever filmed, frankly. And that was completely Bob's idea. And it's also probably my favorite thing we've ever done. Yet.
2: I was like in the shower going, how are we going to end this one? I I, I got to make Ben laugh. And I came up with how we ended it. And I'm like, oh,
1: he's going to love that. It's so wrong.
2: It's so wrong. But that's how I know that it's it was going to work. <laughs> and to this day, it's it's one of our most popular episodes for sure.
0: While we're on the subject of that where can we find 20 seconds to live
2: uh, it's on Adam Green's website Uh Adam uh, uh, presented uh, I think our first nine episodes so they're all they're all living there uh, it's also on TV, which is a, a great site that, that basically uh, puts a bunch of wonderful web series together and you can watch our show there and you can watch tons of others uh, we're on Facebook and also live dot com. Yeah, that's probably the easiest way. Yeah,
1: yeah, they're all. They're, I mean, yeah, it's. It, I mean, if you're on Facebook, we we just uploaded them all to Facebook's video uh, thing. And when, there's a few like you know horror horror people in them in, in them like uh, um, Derek Mears, who's the current Swamp Thing, the new Swamp Thing. Derek Derek's a friend of ours. He's in one. Tom Holland, the guy who directed Fright Night and and uh, Child's Plays, in one of them. Graham Skipper, who directed. Uh, uh, sequence break and is the lead in beyond the gates. And also is like the lead out here in reanimated the musical. He's in it. Who am I forgetting? Um, or, well, Adam green is in Adam horror. green.
2: Yeah. yeah. And the thing is, it was great. Cause we, we built up a really passionate fan base. And so we were able to actually raise money, uh, on Indiegogo for a second season. So we actually have four brand new episodes, uh, that are super ambitious. It's taken us a long time to get through posts, but yeah. I think they're going to be really cool. And uh, actually, it's great. Uh, we have one episode called Suburban Evil that Devin Seidel is in. And then we so we shot that with her uh, probably a year and a half ago. And then she went on to star in Video Palace. So
1: like she I plays Tamra, correct? Yeah, correct, yeah. Correct, yeah. It's all
0: connected. She's so and
1: good. T- and today is her birthday.
0: Is Happy Happy it really? birthday, yeah. Devin. Happy birthday, Devin. Hey guys, so you were just talking about Mike Manello. Did you guys all kind of just keep in touch this whole time? And and how did this oh, yeah. process come together where you started working on Video Palace?
1: Well, um, yeah, of course we all uh, we all went to college together. So I've known Mike since before Blair Witch. We all he was uh, I think two years ahead of me at, at UCF, and Mike also got me the job at the Enzian Theater. If you're uh, If you're ever in Maitland, Florida, if you're in Orlando and you want to see a great art house movie and have a fine meal, go to the Enzian Theater. It's awesome. But he got me a job there as like one of the managers and he was the marketing director. And it's really Mike's, uh, not to back up to Blair Witch too much, but Mike was the one who put uh, Dan Myrick into the orbit of John Pearson, who was the person who I I, I would say more than anyone who was the linchpin that got Blair Witch the, you know, 25 grand (laughs) that we made it with. Um, but John Pier- John Pearson was shooting an episode of his show called Split Screen, and and Mike hooked him up as his cameraman. And while they were working, he slipped him a VHS tape of that uh, pitch tape, and he watched it and got back to Dan. And it, it was actually an ep- the thing we made ended up being an episode of Split Screen or a, a segment on Split Screen. So Mike Mike and I have stayed in touch. Mike sort of left the film business a while ago uh, to pursue um, like he he formed a company called Campfire that does like. Experience driven marketing, advertising kind of stuff. Um, Campfire, they're brilliant. And I've done a lot of uh, video work for them over the years, but like they work on like big, interesting stuff. Like their most recent thing they did was at Comic Con last year, there was an installation for the Purge TV series that was like a, a pop up store of purge purge. uh, Like it was like, if the purge was real and like, here's, you know, stuff. Uh, It
2: was a play on party city and it was called purge city. Yeah. Oh, nice. And like, yeah, it seems like every, every time they do something like that based on a TV show or a movie, it kind of blows up a comic con. So
1: yeah. And Mike is like next level. Brilliant. He comes up with these brilliant kind of come at you sideways in a way you don't expect very narrative driven marketing plans. Him and his whole company campfire. And Nick, uh, Braccia, who, who co-created uh, video palace, they work together there. Uh, they're both like two of the principals there. And, um, so yeah, I've, I've, I've been in touch with Mike. I've, you know, like for campaigns, the campfire did over the years for true blood and 4,400 and some other things, Audi I've worked for Mike. So they had a relationship with, uh, some of the, some of the people at shutter, um, the executives there, uh, Owen Shiflet and, uh, Nick Lazo. And, uh, they had the idea for this podcast and they had kind of come up with like a 10 page document that was sort of uh, episode for episode idea, uh, kind of kind of a loose idea of what it would be. And in working with Nick and Owen, they'd come up with the idea to kind of tell them this idea. Uh, they knew that Shutter was looking for some podcasts, and Shutter was very interested in it. So I, uh, we weren't Bob and I weren't involved at that stage. But when Shutter sparked to the idea, Mike and I for years had been talking about doing some kind of a narrative podcast just for fun. So Mike gave me a call to see if I'd be interested in in hopping on board, and uh, then I called Bob to see if he'd be interested in hopping on board. Kind of showed him the outline. And once we kind of had that going, uh, Mike and Nick kind of handed it off to us for the most part. They were involved in that. We would show them outlines or whatever. And um, they were very, very helpful and full of suggestions, but they sort of let us drive the, uh, the concept from that moment forward. And uh, it, was, it was really great, you know, and, and also uh, the other Nick and Owen over at Shutter were great, too, in that regard. And Bob and I basically, my I, I just became a dad last year. And well, congratulations. <laughs> thank you. And about three weeks after uh, my son was born, Bob and I were sitting in the very room that we're sitting in now mm-hmm. and with uh, uh, cork boards and, and index cards and thumbtacks kind of trying to figure out, like, what you know basically laying out what the season would be putting up the ideas that were in the original outline uh nick and mike were were pretty cool if we had a better pitch to kind of go in that direction i think if you look at the at their outline we stuck to a lot of it but we also added a lot of our own stuff and uh it's been a really great experience working with them on on the whole thing
2: yeah i I should say that you credit as correctly as as co-writers but uh, Ben also directed the podcast, and that, I think that's when when he originally called me, he was like, "Hey, Mike, once you know, once asked me if I wanted to direct this. I can't write the thing by myself. Do you want to come on and help?" And so I was like, "You know, absolutely." And yeah, they had a, they had a, a about a, I guess a ten page document that was you know the the, the general world and the general beats. But it was it was it was it was great having the freedom for Ben and I to just create our own little writers' room. It was the two of us and a couple corkboards and a bunch of cards. We put up the scenes that were kind of already envisioned by the, you know by Mike and Nick, who stayed on as executive producers and kind of oversaw the whole process. But it was really an awesome part of the process for Ben and I to just kind of start you know fleshing out you know filling in the gaps. In that story and for Ben being the director to have such a strong vision on how he wanted the podcast to sound and feel, that was kind of the, the, the driving, I think the driving narrative force for us, you know, continuing to break the rest of the show.
1: And, and honestly, like Bob probably would have been the first writer I would have gone to no matter what, but Bob has episodic TV writing experience. We needed to break it. Like it was a TV series. Like we knew that we were going to make about 10 episodes and we knew that they were going to be a certain length. And, um, you know, I've written like I've like I wrote Curse of the Blair Witch and I've written a few TV specials that were kind of standalone, but like something that had to, you know, continually engage the audience and come up with the cliffhangers, but not feel contrived in how the cliffhangers came up and stuff like that. You know, and I I think that Bob having episodic uh, TV writing experience was humongous for making that all flow.
0: Speaking of a 10 page document, I was thinking about it when I was listening, how you guys must have gone into fleshing out like the mythos of the white tapes and the whole urban legend aspect of that. You know, you mentioned things like Polybius in the uh, podcast, which I thought was really cool. So how far did you go with that? I mean, is there a, um, maybe I'm jumping ahead, but is there a a bigger mythology and is there a bigger story that you guys have left out? Very much so. You know,
1: I think I'm not speaking out of school when I say shutter is interested in doing stuff like this, because if it, if it is the right thing at the right time, they're interested in spinning it off into some, into a TV series or a movie or into a something else. Oh, nice! So, uh, which isn't, I mean, like th- none of that's happening at the moment. I'm not like breaking any news here, but um, you know, I think that they're still kind of evaluating how season one went and and figuring out their future in in the podcast space. But we very intentionally left massive hooks in there that could be. Uh, sort of a narrative through line into something else, if that makes sense. And we did like, we didn't on Blair, Witch. I had time to just come up with all the mythology and I've worked on a few other projects. I did a thing for SeaWorld, One of their Halloween things once where like we had to create a giant mythology document. We had to, we didn't have the luxury of time because like we were writing it in June. We recorded it in July and the whole thing was delivered at the beginning of September. So like it went fast um but we did come up with kind of the basic mythology of it and we've sort of been filling it in ever since in in a way that's consistent with what we uh with what happened in uh, you know in, in season 1
2: yeah i think it was it was always our goal to kind of create a fully fleshed out world and uh we wanted to uh, like we wanted to be be careful that we weren't just like throwing w- weird shit at the audience in season 1 and not <laughs> knowing what it really was. Like there's plenty of moments where hopefully a listener is going what the hell just happened? trying to figure it out and you know, we felt it was important for us to know and then it, and then it gave us the luxury of going, well, how much information are we going to give to the audience and figuring out the exact right amount to parcel out to keep them interested and keep them guessing was part of the challenge, but uh you know, we're, we're hoping we get a season two because um,
0: the, the story is not over. There's, Correct. <laughs> there's, a, there's, there's a lot more to tell. Very much. Oh, that's great. So how's the response been? Have you had any feedback from the listeners? And, you know, have you really paid attention to that? And as far as how people are loving Video Palace, it seems like that's just an, a given that it's a fantastic podcast and people are loving it. Because let me just say, maybe I'm just basing this off of what I like, but it was something that grabbed me immediately. You know, as opposed to other horror genre podcasts, this one had a real unique way of being recorded, it seemed to me. I don't know for a fact I was going to ask you about that, but it provided like a realism and a physicality that I don't hear in a lot of podcasts. For instance, there's some running going on, and it sounds like you're on different locations and things like that. I think that that goes a long way, and I think that people appreciate that kind of thing. Do you feel that you've gotten a good response from that? Uh, let me set you up, Ben. I, I can say that, yeah, We've,
2: we, I mean, we've been keeping an eye on that. Uh, basically we're we've been getting really really strong reviews on both uh shutter from their fan base and subscribers but then also on itunes um and so that stuff i think has been really helpful with you know shutter's engagement and excitement about the project is the fact that the fans have been speaking and they really do like it and they're letting us know and so that's really exciting to us and like you know as a fan of the project and a fan of ben's like ben, they they've really responded to the way it sounds and the way it feels, and that I I I, I looked to Ben as the director because he really did create this vision on what he wanted, and, and it really did work. So you you should tell him about like
1: how you how we did it. Please do. So yeah, uh, so we didn't have long to record it. So the script, all the entire script for all ten episodes was about 189 pages once it was all you know put into one document. And, you know, like in the film world, like a busy day would be like an eight page day or, you know, like films are going to shoot, you know, maybe between three and seven pages a day, depending on your budget, you know, maybe like 11 or 12 pages. If you're insane, uh, we were do, we sort of had to do the whole thing in a week. (laughs) So, so it was about five pages an hour. Um, and we all come from a film background and, um, we had talked about doing like putting people in ISO booths. So they're just like all in an isolation booth, kind of doing their, their bits. And I felt like that would ruin the, you know, the, kind of the realism and verisimilitude that we were trying to go for. So, um, what we ultimately settled on was, uh, we recorded it at a place called, uh, Iceman in, uh, Burbank. And it's basically a Foley booth. So it's like, you know, probably yeah, it's like a little bigger than a normal bedroom in a house. I've been in bigger bed, smaller bedrooms, but, you know, maybe like a living room. And it's a sound, a sound, st- a sound studio. So we'd bring our actors in there and we would stage the scenes like it was a movie or like it was a play. And the beauty of it was, uh, you know, you don't have to worry about anything that you see. So, you know, makeup, props, costumes, sets, lights, cameras, lenses, not, you don't have to worry about that. So you can move really fast. It's basically just very basic scene work with actors like we would do in theater. And so, you know, like the scene you're talking about, uh, which I, I'm guessing is the scene in uh, episode two when Shane Mueller chases Mark out of uh out of his mother's
0: house. Exactly.
1: Like they're they're really running. Like they're running from one side of the studio to the other. And um I had said to the guys at Iceman um like we should give Mark uh you know, Chase Williamson who plays Mark we should give him like a uh like a like a omnidirectional microphone or something so when he's interviewing someone it can sound like he's moving the microphone around but they did me one better they got an a, a Zoom H4N which is literally the device I'm recording this conversation on right now and it has like two kind of not bad but not great microphones that kind of stick out of the front of it um for you know recording it's great for recording like live on the scene interviews and in addition to like putting expensive lav mics and boom mics and everything on them we gave chase that microphone and he would point it around so if he's at amber hutchins house and he's interviewing her he's really pointing it around chase himself the actor is pointing it around or we would decide like oh he would have put it on a table and pointed it at her and it was one of the things that i kept noticing on uh actually it was in crime town which is another podcast that i love i would notice that um you know they'd be interviewing somebody and it's it, that, that show's done by Gimlet they're one of the main podcast companies but the you you you'd have the microphone pointed only at the person being interviewed and then they would leave their questions in all echoey and shitty and I was like we need to kind of include a world where like this guy's only got one device and he's he's pointing the microphone at someone so like we want the audio to sound like it would sound um, we had even talked about with our producer, Liam Finn about like, what if we just rented an office and hired like a regular old movie sound recorder guy? And, uh, you know, it's like, Hey, we need a room. That's, that's, you know, Mark and Tamara's apartment. Let's just use this office, blah, blah, blah. We talked about doing that, but for the sake of time, that would have murdered us. Cause we would have had company moves. We were like, Hey, if they're in a car, we'll just go do it in a car. It would have killed us. So we kind of split the baby by, by b- physically blocking the scenes, but, um, but, um, but doing it in that studio and crossing our fingers and I, and I feel like we accomplished this with our, our sound post house, um, Diablo sound, um, assuming that we could add the ambience in later and that we could make it sound like they were really in those locations. Cause you know, again, the, the pace that we had to go at, there was just no, like, if we had to say like, Hey, we're going to a car, let's go get in the car. Even if we're just getting into the car in our parking lot. That would have, you know, there goes 20 minutes. And if we're doing five pages an hour, there goes, you know, whatever, three pages that we could have recorded in that amount of time. It was so fast. I cannot emphasize how fast it went by.
2: But like Ben really made a statement, like the the first day, the first scene was actually the first scene of of, of the show, which is when Mark is, is talking in his sleep and Tamara wakes him up and he's, you know, been, been recording his uh, sleep talking on, on a snore app. And so we walk in, and the actors kind of sit on their stools and are getting ready. And Ben's like, uh, can we get some Fernie pads so they can lay on the floor? And our sound guy was like, why? It's like, eh, let's just get them on the floor. And so we basically created sort of a, a makeshift bed. The actors laid down. We had them crank down the light so it was mostly dark. We set up the little hand recorder next to them to kind of act as his iPhone. And, and, that's, and that's how we did the first scene. And it really created an ambience for the actors to work in because they, they could actually Act. They could do their job and not have to pretend to be sleepy, and they can actually, you know, they can actually act that scene out. But the thing is it didn't take us very long. No. Like for, for to throw some pads on the floor and lay them down or for a couple of people to chase themselves around around a room, you know, even the most dramatic scenes never took us longer than about 15 minutes. We'd do a few takes, Ben would direct, give a few tweaks, they'd do them again, and we move on. Even the most dramatic stuff, we were just tearing through it. We were doing 30, yeah. you know, 38, 40 pages a day.
1: And it's weird because I it never actually felt rushed because like like I would say we never moved on till we thought we had the scene. Yeah. And there was a lot of times where I'm like, I can't think of anything better. This is how I operate in film, too. Like, I can't think of any way to fix to make this any better. This is as good as I can imagine this being. And we would just move on. So, you know, we'd ordinarily do, you know, between, you know, whatever, three or five takes of any given scene. And then uh, I ended up doing like the dramatic scenes and all the interviews. I ended up editing them because and I know how to cut that stuff. So, um, you know, like I knew as an editor, I know what I can get away with.
0: Speaking of those interviews, I thought that was also so cool because you actually, if I'm not mistaken, interviewed real people and then incorporated it into the podcast, correct? Oh, totally. <laughs> that was so goddamn cool. I yeah, love yeah. that.
1: Yeah, Steve Barton and Adam Green and Sam Zimmerman, Brian Collins and Eric Spudick are all real people. But then uh, we used a technique that I used on the Blair Witch specials years ago, which is uh, to write up kind of a detailed bio for the actors. And this is also how they auditioned for it. Okay. So, so and when I say detailed, it's probably only two pages. Um, and then they would come in with that knowledge and then Chase Williamson would just interview them as Mark Cambria. And so he could ask them follow up questions. He could ask, you know, like he could interact with them in character. So the interviews to, to me, like if I sit down, if no matter how well Bob or I sat down and wrote all the responses to an interview, it would come out sounding like it was in our voice and somebody would sound like they were reading off of a script. And, uh, and it wouldn't sound natural to them. But this technique, which, again, we used on Curse of the Blair Witch, Shadow of the Blair Witch, and the Burkittsville 7, and also I did a, a TV special for the first Hellboy, and we used the exact same technique there. Like, you end up getting very real interviews. The bummer is that they're also as long as recorded interviews. So, you know, for a 30-second maybe or, you know, no more than maybe two- or three-minute interview, you'd have 20 minutes, 30 minutes of stuff to sift through. And that's why I would edit those because – you know, I mostly knew how I wanted it to feel.
2: Yeah, but an, like an example is like in Betts Mueller when he in, interviews Betts Mueller in episode two. The interview is is the the process that Ben's talking about, where in the script, you know all the all the information is in italics, which basically means to the actor memorize this and be able to talk about it naturally. But then they would shift into certain bits of scene that were scripted, and the hope and the goal would. For you, the listener, to not be able to tell the difference, to not be able to tell when the actor is is improvising based on on a bio they've memorized and when they're actually reading scripted stuff, and and to be able to shift through through back and forth multiple times in an episode, and hopefully you can't tell the difference. That was absolutely our goal, and luckily we, we had an insanely talented cast. Yeah, cast. Our great. cast was incredible, and we had. And it's funny, like we had a lot of like, you know voiceover people that, that auditioned, that are, that are wonderful actors and wonderful voiceover people that we didn't cast. I think Ben just naturally led more leaned more towards theater actors and improv actors and people that are just, that are kind of used to, to being able to kind of make stuff up, but make it up, that make it sound natural. Well, and, real. and,
1: and also, I, I can't stress enough, our, our casting director, yes, Liam Mangum, oh my gosh. Uh, Her husband is Jonathan Mangum, who's like the co-host of Let's Make a Deal. And both of them are like neck deep in the improv community. Like they just know everybody in the improv community. So she's able to bring in actors who are phenomenal at improv. And even though, you know, we did have a scripted, you know, 183 pages of script and a lot of it was tightly scripted in almost every scene, it would be like, hey, could you give me the 10 seconds before the scene starts and follow after? Because I know that we're going to be like ducking their conversation under music. Or whatever, like we like we need and we just needed people who could who could roll with that kind of stuff. Or she'd bring in people like Anina DeNovi, who plays cat, and she's got a real background in uh, in music theory. And she's got a degree in it. So she came in and like she she like ad libbed some of the stuff that we were. Bob was like, why didn't we
2: think
0: of that? <laughs> and good and evil, man. That was all her. And I'm like, we were taking that. Yeah, <laughs> that just wonderful. made the cut. <laughs> yep. Let's talk about the white tapes for a second. There is a podcast called The Black Tapes, and I'm just curious, were you familiar with that, and was there any type of similarity drawn from that? Did you guys make it a point to go completely away from that? Where did you get your inspiration for The White Tapes?
1: So the the origin of the idea of there being tapes that are white is that there's a show on Shudder called The Core— and and at the end of every episode, Sam Zimmerman would give the host a white VHS tape with a movie recommendation on it. And so when Nick and Mike had the original idea, it was to like have a little bit of synergy with that. Like what if these tapes uh, were, you know, were somehow connected to that part, th- that thing that, the, that uh, Shutter had already produced. Okay. Um, in terms of having listened to the black tapes, people have told me about it for a while. And it's one of those things I because sub- I subscribe to a zillion podcasts. I subscribe to it, but I never listen to it. And then when I knew we were doing this, I absolutely didn't listen to it because I just didn't want it to color. See what I did there? <laughs> I, I didn't. I didn't want it to color my, you know, my my uh, my perception or you know, like I didn't want to do anything to lean in or away from what the black tapes were. Um, so I, I, to this day, I still haven't listened to it, but I intend to. Um, but yeah, the white tapes were initially from the core.
0: I don't really find any similarity to be honest with you, but it's just the names what stuck out. So I thought I'd ask about that. So I'm going to go to another reference, and I'm hoping you guys can answer this one for me. Uh, I'm a huge Mike Patton fan. I love Faith No More, <laughs> and uh, you guys had pulled up a pretty good pool in there that Mark brings up about the band Phantomas. So, are you fans of Phantomas? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so
2: basically, my—I'm pretty sure it was my roommate back in Orlando who was a big music nerd. Played—is it—is it—it's pronounced Phantomas? Phantomas, yes. Okay. Uh, I was playing very odd band box. by the way yeah oh my gosh yeah like like I <laughs> Ben you've probably never heard of them have you I, I haven't no it's like imagine all the you know the bridges and speed metal and thrash where it's like they're shifting from one t- one tempo to another tempo yeah, yeah imagine an entire song of that
1: and it's Mike Patton from Faith No More yeah yeah I mean like I've heard Mr. Bungle and Mr. Bungle this is, is like this is this is Craziness. It's like the Captain Beefheart of music. I won't yeah. understand.
2: Yeah. Anyways, my, my roommate years ago played that for me, and it always just kind of stuck with my in, in my head. And so it was actually it was actually a Shutter Note because the narration it comes in episode nine when they're having to uh, brainstorm that a safe word that uh, that Tamer can use to to kind of snap Mark out of it if they're ever getting too deep into their obsession, right? And. uh it was as her his narration was like we went through everything video games band names childhood pet names and it was actually a note from Shutter which was like oh can we get some of them just kind of riffing on the various names and you can kind of lay that under we're like that's a great idea so i i I, I think i wrote the list which was tetris <laughs> Phantomus, yeah and sparkles i don't know if i wrote sparkles i think that it may have been devin
1: yeah devin devin might have ad-libbed that one and
2: she had libbed like eight different like <laughs> deep cut Lord of the Rings characters. because Nerd. She's a nerd. Uh, but yeah, so yeah, Phantoms was just, I don't know. Um, <laughs> it just seemed like a good a, a good, uh, a good uh, deep cut to throw
0: in there. So you had mentioned the improvisation of the actors. Was it pretty easy to get them on board because they're so phenomenal? I mean, they do such a good job with this, uh, you know, particularly Chase Williamson and, of course, Devin Seidel. How easy was it to get them involved? Um, I mean, honestly, they both fought for the roles, Oh no. uh,
1: which, which made me, uh, like, I don't know. I mean, I'm a humongous fan of John dies at the end. And I think Chase is an amazing actor. And when, and I did, I, I sort of knew him cause I'd worked on Victor Crowley, but we hadn't like hung out on Victor Crowley set. And he was, he, you know, like we were, I was off doing other stuff while he was shooting usually, but I'd met him like three or four times. Um, but like when he was willing to come in and read because, you know, shutter shutter just wanted to hear everybody on tape. So everybody had to audition. Um, I was just blown away. And then he kind of like we were friends on Facebook and he would just kind of not in an intrusive way, but he'd kind of message me like, hey, what's going on? Because it took it took a minute for us to get our final approvals on everybody. Uh, Interestingly enough, with Devin, like we've known Devin from the L.A. theater scene for a few years. And we uh, she's in like Bob said, she's in one of our episodes of 20 Seconds to Live that's coming up. And we would brought her in actually to read for Cat. And when she came in, we were short uh, a Tamra for one of the actors who was reading for, um, for Mark. And I said, like, hey, hey, uh, you know, would you be willing to just kind of come in and do this real quick? She's like, yeah, no problem. And she went in and, and, and nailed the scene. And when we, gave, when we submitted it to Shudder, they passed on the dude who read Mark with her. But they were like, who's that woman reading, uh, reading uh, Tamra? And, uh, and so we brought her back. And, uh, she, I mean, she's just a, a pleasure to work with, but they're both theater trained actors. And I think that you find that theater trained actors are always game or mostly game to do improv, you know, like it's not just an unstructured, like just do anything. Like, you know, every scene has a reason and we're both, Bob and I were both there in the booth with them. Uh, and so it was very intimate in that way. Cause it was just the two of us and whoever was acting in the scene. Um, and uh, I I think that they both had a blast with it. And Chase, you know, Chase gets it. He's a big podcast person, and in fact, he has his own podcast called "Done Disappeared." That's sort of a parody of Up and Vanished. That's brilliant. That he that where he plays a character that's doing a podcast. Um, he he just understands the whole podcast thing through and through. And so does Devin. Actually, she and I have kind of swapped podcast uh, podcasts that we love over the last several months.
2: And I can say like they're both. I mean, they're both successful in film and TV actors and doing commercials and stuff like that. And that's an awesome career to have. But, like, the the, the structure of your day is you show up, you maybe you do a blocking rehearsal, then you do hair and makeup, then you sit in your trailer for maybe a really long time, and then you come out and you shoot for, like, an hour, and then you have to go away and then come back three hours. It's just a, it's a kind of a weirdly structured day, and it's, it's you know, the work is awesome, so I'm, I'm sure that they love it. Like, But they came in to work with us, and they're acting the whole day. Yeah. Devin was like in a ponytail her first day and T-shirt and jeans. She's like, I don't have to worry about my makeup. I can just come in and just work and yeah. be with you guys. And we're like, yep, that's it. So like they were just working nonstop and there was no like, I'm tired anytime. It's like, no, we just yeah. kept working, took a lunch break, came back. It was like everybody had this kind of like theater, like let's put on a show energy. And to do that, you know, on something that is now, you know, released to the masses, it, it combined kind of, it's it combined theater and TV in a weird way. Yeah. In a way that was, I think, I think it was, Super cool for us, but I think it was also really, you know, enjoyable for the actors.
0: With your film background and now dipping your toes into the podcasting waters, is there a medium that you prefer more now?
2: Mm, We've talked about this. (laughs) Uh, Podcasting is seductive because, like, it took me, you know, six years to get Air I Breathe made, four years to get Killers made, and this took 17 weeks. From Ben and I sitting down going, let's break the story to, here you go, Shutter. <laughs> here, <here's, laughs> here are the here's, finals. Here's three hours of content. So like the speed and the reward of it, you know, the creative reward is just really addictive. So uh, that's kind of hard to ignore. How about you, Ben?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say that there's one I prefer over the other. But I agree that because I think because a podcast is going to even the most expensive possible podcast you can think of is still going to be way cheaper than making the equivalent film. Sure. You know, um, the, uh, it's it's going to be a lot easier to get some kind of budget <laughs> to make these things. And uh, I love it because, you know, like we've seen everything, but we haven't really heard everything, if that makes sense. You know, like... I I I uh, like think about like a werewolf movie or something. It's like CGI has kind of ruined werewolf movies because you can literally do anything, you can see anything. But if you just heard a werewolf transformation, that would like that could be unnerving in ways that you weren't expecting. Um, and that goes for literally everything. Um, the 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 thing is that um, it it kind of taps into a creativity that we don't always get to tap into in the film world because we're sort of writing the language of our own podcast as we go. And a podcast can literally be anything that is done in a recorded medium. So in this case, we definitely went for a very first person thing. Um, And I think I would probably keep going in that direction, but like, like one of the things I was talking uh, to uh, Bob about Is that like in movies, it's a lot about efficiency, you know, like there's, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to get the scene across, you're trying to get the sequence uh, built and kind of move on to the next thing. Whereas in podcasts, they take a long time, they're okay, kind of languishing. And I think it's because it's like a medium that happens entirely in your head. Most people who are listening to them are listening to them by themselves. They're like at the gym or walking the dog or in the car. Like people don't, you know, all sit around the the radio and listen to podcasts podcast together as a rule. I mean, I'm sure somebody does, but, um, so it's like this real intimate thing that you're doing where you're talking directly into somebody's head. And, and, uh, you know, to me there's something really fun and interesting about it. I mean, it's not that I don't want to make films. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't feel like I have to choose. People have been saying to me for years, like, which do you prefer theater or film? And it's like, I didn't know that I had to choose a team. I think they're both fun. And I think this is uh fun in a in a different way. And I I must uh second what Bob said about just kind of the speed of it. Like there's something about having an idea and I mean we we certainly could have used a little more time on every front, but you know, not much more time and we were able to execute, you know, like, you know, do do everything that you would do on a film basically, you know, write it, cast it, produce it post-produce it and do all those things and we were able to do it in 17 weeks. It's not uh, not a bad gig if you can get it.
0: Do you see a trend happening where you think more filmmakers may start venturing into the podcast world?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: I I think I think, I think it happened uh, kind of around the around the writer strike. I think a lot of out of work writers started doing um, started doing web series, started moving into comic books, writing for video games. I think there's just the film and TV is, is an amazing industry and it's just, it's just incredible to be able to reach that many people with that, you know, high quality of content, but it's not fast and it's, it's, and it's really expensive and you can't do it all the time. And so I think we're just naturally drawn to, uh, to mediums where we can just be creative and have fun and get our work out there. And so, you know, um, like Ben and I, we we tried to develop movies before. We've you know we've got projects in our past, but like Twenty Seconds to Live, we greenlit ourselves, and now there's a show out there that we made that we're super proud of, and and this one still you know Shutter had to greenlight it, but you know they weren't spending that much money, and so it was like you know they gave us a lot of leeway to be as creative as we wanted to, and so uh, I think that's it's just really addictive, and I think I think. It's. I think it's. It's. It's a. Uh, it's a medium that is right for uh, for people to get in there and uh, to be creative and try try new stuff.
1: I yeah. Think. Yeah. And the other thing, and and Bob's touching on it too, is it's like uh, you know think about it from Shutter's point of view, um, the amount of money that they spent on this is not even nearly what you would spend on the cheapest pilot that you could make, and they ended up with three hours worth of content, so they can sort of stress test an IP to see if there's an audience for it, because you know, if you don't happen to be making something that's a remake or based on a comic book or based on pre-existing material, like you're doing something original, which this is, um, it's harder and harder in the business to get people to kind of roll the dice on it. But, you know, like as far as the business, I mean, like, you know, I'm not complaining about our budget at all, but, but it, um, it's kind of small beans in, in the film and TV world. And so I, uh, Mike Manello and I have also talked a lot about this where it's like there's a lot of companies that are playing with the idea of uh, creating IP through podcasting to see if they can find an audience. And, you know, when you look at like Homecoming on Amazon, you know, after being a Gimlet podcast, like that experiment was extraordinarily successful. And so, you know, probably more people are going to try and, you know, lots of people f- will uh, come to it and few will succeed just like everything.
2: Yeah, it's weird. It's uh, Ben and I both had long careers. We've been out out here doing this for you know close to twenty years, both of us. And um, it's it's often hard to be at the right place at the right time in your career, and like to to, to make the thing at the moment when everybody kind of wants to consume it. And this is this is kind of an interesting time where I'm like, huh. We might be, I mean, there's definitely been very successful narrative podcasts already, but it hasn't had like a tipping point moment. There hasn't been like a serial that all of a sudden everybody in the country is listening to a certain narrative, you know, uh, fictional podcast. So I feel like we're kind of in it at the right moment to, to, I don't know, to try new stuff and to maybe, yeah, I don't know, try to do some things that haven't been yet done yet. So that's a, uh, for a creator, that's a, a really exciting place to be.
0: Well, you guys are coming out swinging, and I think you're setting a fantastic example.
1: Well, thanks.
0: Yeah, I mean, seriously, no, no bullshit at all. You, this is a fantastic podcast that you guys have done. It's a, It's a massive piece of work, and I'm so surprised at the amount of time that it didn't take, I guess you could say. <laughs> yeah. While you guys were talking, I was thinking, you know, you mentioned budget. You mentioned time restriction. Now that it's out and it's had time to marinate. Do you ever go back and kind of go, well, I wish I would have done this a little bit differently, or, or maybe next season that we do something, uh, let's try this instead, or have you have you got any any new ideas, you know, in store for the next season if it happens?
1: Well, uh, I mean, it's two kind two questions. So, uh, as far as do we have something in store for next season, we are brainstorming for uh, ideas for a possible second season. But, you know, like, we don't, again, we, we don't have news to break. It's not like it's been greenlit or anything. We just sure. are, have been kind of kicking around some ideas. As far as, like, would we go back and do things differently? Uh, you know, uh, uh, yes, always when you kind of look down the road and go, like, oh, you know, like, if we'd had this or that, it would have been better. The thing about this is we kind of ended up with kind of the perfect storm of of personnel, really. Uh, Our producer, Liam Finn, our post-production house, Diablo Sound, our sound designer, Jeremy Lee, like they all kind of lined up like we kind of I, I almost feel like we just got away with murder a little bit like like we just like we lucked out and got amazing people. The cast is like everyone in the cast was kind of our first choice, really. And so uh, to me, it's like I don't look back on it. I, I, I don't want to say that I wouldn't do things differently. But the things that I would do differently are things that we would have had no way of knowing before we did it the first time. You know, and it's all boring stuff. Like how would we schedule it? You know, like how how much time would we allot to edit each episode yeah. and, and that kind of th- thing? I think time is the big one. I think a
2: little bit more time, not too much more time, but a little more time I think would have just helped everybody with, you know, I think sleep. Yeah. And, uh, you know, taking care of their, their home lives. Um, but creatively, I mean, we kind of got to do almost everything that we wanted to do.
1: Yeah. I mean, like, I think a lot of it was we didn't know if it would work. Yeah. Like, we didn't. I, I was afraid that recording it in a sound, you know, a soundproof room would mean that everybody, everything would sound antiseptic and it didn't. Um, And, you know, to me, that was, you know, that was a big deal. uh, Getting the kinds of performance out of actors. Some actors can do this kind of thing and some can't. But I feel like Leah, our casting director, did a great job of bringing in the right people and the people that we brought in. Like they were game to do it. And, uh, you know, working with Chase and Devin in in the two leads, like they set a great example for everyone. So, like, you know, when a new actor would walk into the scene and they hadn't done a scene and they were working with Chase or Devin, like, you know, they know Chase and Devin are, have been there for days and and they could just kind of follow that lead. So, um, you know, to me, it, there was a whole lot of I hope this doesn't not work like I, you know, and, and we would try and cover our our asses as much as we could for, for the eventuality of like, oh, you know, like what if we have to rerecord performances or whatever? Like we were afraid of that and we didn't have to. We didn't we didn't re-record anything um like after those five days in the booth like that's that's what we got and so to me it it more just kind of said like if we were to do a second season or another podcast like this i think we would just sit down and be very realistic about how long stuff took As like bob said it was like some of the episodes had to be cranked out very very quickly and i would have to kind of be a douche and say like no we need to make the following changes before we send it along
0: I wanted to talk about the music of Video Palace. It was something that really had a real eerie feeling about it. And I, Like you were mentioning how people listen to the podcast while they're lying in bed or whatever. I was lying in bed the first time I heard it, and it just it added to that creepy element of it. Uh, who's responsible for doing the music? Uh,
1: it's a guy named Michael Tioli. Um, Michael is uh, an old friend of ours, also from the theater world out here. And uh, he's a giant horror nerd. Um, he, he also kind of lobbied, uh, to do music for this. And, uh, um, you know, like when, when I originally, uh, reached out to him, uh, he was in, I think Portland and there was a video store that had a bunch of white videotapes and that he like took pictures of himself holding the white tapes and sent them to me. Um, but like, you know, he was, uh, deeply inspired by like, um, you know, 1970s Dario Argento goblin kind of music. And, uh, I feel like, you know, he gave us so much of a variety and, uh, you know, through the whole post process, I think sometimes I felt like I was asking for too much from him, but he never complained. He, he would always like, we, we need a special piece for such and such and we'd have it the next day. Like he was, he was fast. And he gets the, the vibe and the tone we were going for. And he was cool. Even like uh, we set up uh, for Cat, who is the composer character that all the music supposedly comes from, we set up a SoundCloud and put all of his music on there. He was cool with that.
2: Yeah, it's Catholic. What is it? Catholics? Um, Cathars for Catholics. Cath, Cathars for Catholics. So like they talk about it in episode four. And like we had no money for any sort of like online Easter eggs or websites or anything. And except that was free. So if if people were listening to that, you can actually go to SoundCloud and you can actually found Cathars for Catholics and you can listen to to Michael's incredible score.
1: Yeah, no, he's, he's the best.
0: So um, I'm actually winding up the interview here, but I do have a couple more questions for you. Because podcasting is getting so popular, particularly long-form podcasts, what advice do you have for any up-and-coming podcasters interested in getting into, like, say, a long-form horror genre? Um, for me, it would be like
2: uh, don't just take your screenplay and make a podcast out of it yeah, I think that's I think that's what happens a lot is like you see a lot of a lot of stage plays in Los Angeles that are just screenplays put on stage. You see screenplays moved into comic books. I think people need to become a student of the medium. And like, that's why I was fortunate, like I mentioned at the very beginning, like I, I'm not, I wasn't a podcast junkie, but Ben kind of got me hooked. So I, I just happened to listen to almost all of the ones that inspired Ben that kind of gave him the language that he wanted to tell this story. So really, I think, dig in and figure out what makes a podcast work, what makes an audio story work, and then make sure that you're either creating a story that fits that or if you already have a story, making sure that you're – you're finding the, uh, the elements in it that will actually work as an audio-only medium. It's like you have to honor the medium, and you can't just kind of try to force your, your story into it because you think it's cheap and easy to get it out to people. It's gotta, it's gotta, there's got to be an organic, orga- organic connection there, and I think that's, uh, there's a little bit of a learning curve there. So, um, But the, luckily, it's not too expensive to, to get out there and make some mistakes and figure stuff out.
1: Yeah, for very little money, you could get like uh, the kinds of microphones that we're sitting on right now and a good recorder and just start doing it. But I, I couldn't say it better than what Bob just said. I would say don't make a movie, don't make a TV show, make a podcast.
0: So what's next for the Rock De Rosa team? What do you guys have in the works? What's going to be coming down the line? Do you have any future works you want to talk about?
1: Well, uh, right now we're uh, finishing up post on, on season two of 20 Seconds to Live. As we kind of mentioned earlier, we did an Indiegogo. We raised some money. Uh, we shot the whole season uh a little bit over a year ago and then uh and then my wife was pregnant while we were shooting it and then I got a bunch of work and then uh then the boy was born and then we went into video palace and it kind of just kept like it kept being a, one thing after another preventing me from finishing season two. Um, but we shot four new episodes, and they're all in post. One of them is completely – they're all various levels of completion, but they're all, they're all kind of coming together right now. Yeah,
2: so we'll definitely be releasing those episodes. We're excited to do that. Um, I think we definitely have a lot of ideas for new podcasts. We also have ideas for Season 2 of Video Palace. So hopefully one or the other will happen this year. Uh, and then, I mean, we have some, some, some TV projects that are like kind of spinoffs of 20 seconds to live episodes. So we've got a pilot we've been working on and then another project based on one of our, our theater shows. So Ben and I are just, we're in development mode right now, which we're just making cool new stuff. And for a while we were, you know, we were guys with separate careers and now, uh, we're uh, from the guys who brought you 20 Seconds to Live in Video Palace. And I don't hey. know if that means anything right now, but uh, hopefully it will. And hopefully that'll Does lead, to, me. To, it'll, it'll lead <laughs> to the next cool thing. That's what we hope. That's the hope.
0: So before we go, where can the listeners find you guys? You want to give your social media addresses or anything like that? Yeah, I'm mostly
2: on Twitter at them, Bob, t-h e and Mary, B-O-B is uh, my Twitter handle.
1: Uh, yeah, I'm on uh, Twitter at, at Neptune Salad. long story uh i'm also on instagram facebook wherever and you can also find uh my uh my reel and stuff like that at benrockonline.com because a uh boating company owns benrock.com and they won't give it to me jerks don't you
0: hate when that happens yeah and we
2: also uh, uh 20 seconds to live is on twitter we've actually got a really uh active fan base and uh we chat with them a lot so at
0: 20 uh, stl is our uh, twitter handle for the show ben bob thank you so much i really can't tell you how blown away i am by video palace you guys have done an amazing job with this and i look so forward to seeing what's coming next with this hopefully season two and hopefully you know they have lore they've got dirty john they've got all those (laughs) other ones we need to have a video palace television series so i'm really fingers crossed for that but guys thank you so much for coming on to heroes of noise i can't thank you enough and thanks uh, for having us thanks dan anything else you want to say
2: before we go Uh, no, just, uh, thanks, thanks for all the kind words. I mean, this, um, we, uh, we're so proud of the show and we're just proud that people are connecting to it and, um,
0: yeah, tell your friends to check out Video Palace.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks, Dan. Thanks guys. There it is guys. Another Heroes of Noise exclusive. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. They were so great to talk to. Very nice guys. Now this is where we do our part. It's really important to support creatives. What these guys are doing is something unique and cutting edge, and we can never have too much of that. So the more listeners that we bring to them, the more chances that we have to get something just as great. I can't stress that enough. That's all I'm going to say this week, guys. Like I said, I wanted to keep it short and sweet. I really, really wanted you to hear this interview, and I'm glad that I finally got to do it. So again, thanks so much to Bob DeRosa and Ben Rock for being awesome guys and talking to me. We will see you next week. But before I go, let me go ahead and give you the contact information. If you want to get a hold of the show, hit us up at heroesofnoisepodcast at gmail.com. If you want to hit us up on Twitter, you can reach me at DanQPublic. You can reach Steve at SE underscore Hudson Music. And of course, you can reach the show at Heroes of Noise Podcast. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Check us out. And please take the time to stop by www.heroesofnoise.com and check out the website there. Make sure you subscribe to the show. And if you're so inclined, please give us a five-star review. We would really appreciate that. If you're feeling chatty, you can leave us a voicemail. Let us know what you thought of this interview and let us know what you think of the show. And for that matter, feel free to leave Steve or myself any comments or questions that you may have. 2019 is going to be a great year and we're going to do whatever we can to bring you more interviews like this. Ladies and gentlemen of the Heroes of Noise podcast community, I thank you for listening. My name is Dan Ramirez. Be good to yourselves. Be good to the people around you. Peace.